the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Hello and welcome to this Farm Advisory Service Livestock podcast. This podcast is designed to give producers up-to-date information on all things livestock. It's funded jointly through the Farm Advisory Service Animal Welfare Programme and the Veterinary Advisory Service. So a big thanks needs to go to Scottish Government for supporting us. Today's podcast focuses on beef. I'm Robert Ramsey. I'm a beef specialist with SEC's livestock team, and I'm joined today by Tim Geraghty from SRUC Vet Services, and also by Karen Stewart, who is a nutritionist with SEC's livestock team. Tim, could you give us a bit more of an insight into what you do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, no bother. Um, so my role, I um, what's called a, a veterinary investigation officer or a VIO, uh, and I work at one of the regional surveillance centres uh, across Scotland. My, my my own lab is up in Aberdeen, but there, there's a, there's there's similar in Dumfries and in St Boswells, and then in several other, other areas we also have uh, veterinary hubs where similar similar jobs are done. Uh, and our remit, I suppose, is to be in very close communication with vet practices in our area uh, so that we learn what they are seeing on farm when they're out and about uh, and when we can be helpful usually around diagnostics trying to figure out why an animal's sick or in some cases why an animal's died then our role would be to to, to help assist uh, so that we can re- reach a diagnosis and un- understand whatever disease processes uh, uh, is on the go. So, so yeah, and I guess in a nutshell, that's it. It's about relationship building with practitioners and, and understanding which diseases are where and what they're doing. Yeah, so it sounds a very interesting job anyway, but on that one, what type of things are you seeing in the vet labs at the moment? What's what's happening? Obviously, there's a whole range of diseases available, but are there any, any common themes and things that are, are really uh, coming to the fore at the moment? Yeah, there are. And so we're largely... The majority of our of our ruminant livestock population is, is are in seasonal systems. Sheep and beef are are certainly seasonal systems, and and what we find is our workload uh, and our case type definitely go with those seasons. Uh, and our seasons from the vet lab are a little bit different to this. The sort of farmer seasons might be calving and lambing and breeding, and those are the, your seasons. Our seasons in the vets, unfortunately, are, are disease oriented. So we're we're just in the middle of or coming toward the end of pneumonia season, so the back end of the year and, and through till now and, and really through the housing period, we see a, an awful lot of pneumonia cases. Uh, and, and what we're just coming into now, as, as pneumonia start to tail off, we come into our, our abortion season. So we'll start to see uh, fetuses coming through the lab as, as the most common common type of submission. And that'll lead us into sort of lambing and calving in full swing when we, when we see you know, a very high risk of young calves dying Obviously, that young lambs, young calves in the first days and weeks of life, um, we'll, we'll we'll see cases then. So we're so we're just in a cusp between pneumonia season and abortion season, just kicking off. Um, there's a few diseases that are uh, go along with with winter time, I suppose. Liver fluke being one of them. Uh, it's we're still seeing commonly diagnosing uh, liver fluke. Sometimes there can be active uh, active um, parasites on the pasture, but that's less common now that the cold weather's here. But what so what we're seeing now is, is sort of chronic damage of, of the parasites surviving in the liver. And if, if you've housed cattle and they've been exposed at grass and never treated, they'll still have active active fluke 
damaging the liver and, and, and reducing food, food conversion efficiency. Um, and then Yoni's, Yoni's disease in cattle is, is really big all year round. It's, it's very, very common and we would diagnose that lots of months of the year. We would see that as one of our most common, common diagnoses. You mentioned that uh, we've come to an end of pneumonia season and I'm sure many farmers across the country will be really glad to hear that pneumonia season uh, or, or the peak pneumonia season is coming to an end, sadly followed by abortion season, which would be better if it was followed by something more positive. But uh, abortions in, in cattle, it's obviously a very, it's a really difficult subject. It's a really, you know, you've got to, you're nearly there, you've nearly got, um, you've got a a cow back in calves, she's done her job, and then you, you get an abortion. It's a really tough thing to deal with. What should we be doing in you know that scenario? We've got a cow that slipped a calf. What what should, what can you do? What can you at SRUC vets do in that scenario? What, how can we help? Yeah, so I I think um, abortions are, are unfortunately common uh, and 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 certainly a, a substantial cause of calf loss through through the year. Um, it's a difficult thing to measure exactly because of the way there, you know, there's there's not mandatory um, recording through through BCMS at least, where, where you know, so we, it's hard to get the figures on it exactly. But when we've looked at it and studied it, we, we certainly uh, probably somewhere two to three percent um, calf loss rate due to abortion. So it's it's a substantial drain on our on our on our systems, um, and and I, I suppose the way I would encourage folk to think about it is it it's an indicator event. As in, it's something we've got a chance now to, to to learn something about our system. There could be something r- really wrong with the herd. We could have an infectious disease in here, which is going to cause a high rate of abortion this year, next year, and 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 every year until we deal with it. So it could be an indicator of something really serious, or it, the feed quality wasn't there, and there's been some spoiled, some spoiled feed stuff, or the water troughs weren't clean enough. You know, it can be can be down there, but. Whatever's whatever's done it, we've got we've got an opportunity to learn, um, and so the the way I would think of, of it is if if you have, and and again this is me speaking as a vet, so please forgive that, but if you have quality material available from a diagnostic point of view, and what that really means is the fetus is there and hasn't been eaten by a fox or uh, taken away, so you've got the fetus there, you've got some placenta there. That's extremely important if you've got the placenta. A lot of causes of abortion, the calf itself or the lamb itself is absolutely fine. Unfortunately, it was, it was a perfectly healthy animal, but it's the placenta that's died. It's the placenta that's had an infection. So if you've got the fetus and the placenta, you've got a really good chance to know if there's something serious going on here. And, and you do that either by getting your own vet to come out and take samples or by bringing that into a, a regional surveillance centre uh, where, where they can take the samples for you. When we when we do that, the, the the diagnostic rate is probably around forty to fifty percent. So in a good proportion of these cases, we won't come back with 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 a with you know saying what oh, was this infection or was that infection, but we always run the suite of tests. So we've looked for listeria or salmonella or brucella or neospora or campylobacter, and you know there's quite a long list, fifteen to eighteen different infections that we'll look for so it's almost a good news you get it back and it says okay it was it wasn't a b c d or e that's quite good news whereas if you get it back and it says oh that's a campylobacter problem 
that's you you're started now and, and you can you can start dealing with that issue uh, and that, you know that that's a, a nice example of something that's not going to go away without without you knowing about it and without you taking some some effort uh, making some effort to, to get rid of that problem yep and obviously these there's some scary sounding diseases there is there any human health issues that we should be aware of when it comes to sampling these materials or handling these materials yeah, certainly, and, and I think I think we should always be cautious around livestock. We we, 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 we get so used to it, don't we? We're, we work with our own stock all the time, and we do we do risk being complacent around we call it zoonotic disease, but hu- human health issues from in, from infectious diseases. But if we took something like Salmonella, um, that's that's always going to be a zoonotic risk, um, a risk a risk to the humans that are handling it. So um, so yes, there are, and and then some of the conditions and this would be particularly true in sheep and, and, and probably hopefully quite well known as well but they're they're really specific and high risk to anybody that might be pregnant um so you know c- keeping keeping people who, who may be pregnant away from the lambing shed is really really good advice really really important and they certainly shouldn't be handling handling material material of that nature whether it's taking it into the vets or taking it into the to the vet centers so so yeah there there is there is risks Obviously, sensible precautions. You know, gloves when you're handing the material, bagging it, bagging it securely, preferably double bagging it and sealing sealing the bag, uh, can 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 dramatically reduce reduce the risk down. Um, but yeah, all, always sensible to be mindful of those things. Yes. And a reminder, of course, that one of the big zoonotic risks with with cattle abortion is is uh, brucella. And cattle abortions should be notified. That's a notifiable disease, and, and all cattle abortions should be notified to your local APHA field office. Yeah, just going back to the, the liver fluke thing, Tim. I just I wondered. So we've had a very we had a very dry period in the late spring, early summer, and now we've had a across most of Scotland, we've had a really particularly cold period as well. Is that? To our advantage, you know, is that helping to break that cycle? Is that something we should be pleased to see? Is that something, you know, as a vet, would we expect to see a bit less fluke because of those two breaks in the cycle? Generally speaking, yes, particularly the, the water. You know, the, the, the life cycle of the liver fluke, of course, goes through a water snail. The wetter ground is, the, the, the more poached and flooded areas are, the, the better that snail does. And, and that snail, he doesn't just spread the infection, he really multiplies it up. So so I can't remember the numbers exactly, but if he ingests one parasite, he can he can shed out um, thousands and thousands and thousands more. So, so it definitely goes with moisture. So dry, dry weather is good. Um, what I would urge is with liver fluke, and, and this is probably quite a well-known story, but it's always worth retelling. Liver fluke has has moved in the country. It's moved east uh, into, into dry air type climates, dry air land, where we hadn't really seen it commonly before. That's happened over the last 10 and 15 years. And, and I would just urge everyone not to be complacent. So I wouldn't be Oh, it's been a dry year. I don't. I don't need to worry about fluke this year. I think. I think those days are gone. I don't think anyone can really be uh, can take that attitude to it. And I would strongly encourage testing um, uh, at this time of year. If you haven't tested already, or, or you don't have a, a a routine health plan in place with your vet, then then certainly consider liver fluke and think about doing some testing for it. Um, even if it's been dry, even if it's been cold, um, it's it's worth bearing in mind. Yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, to say you've you said it's spread or it's it's moved east. It's I suppose it's spread east because it's certainly well and truly still here in the west. It's a 
our own farm at home, we had a 72-inch rainfall last year. So, you know, we've got perfect conditions for, for liver fluke and certainly that, that threat's very un, unlike, unlikely to go away. And uh, as you say, testing and monitoring for that is going to be increasingly important, particularly with resistance issues and things down the line too. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's good. So, Karen, I'm, I'm conscious you're sitting quietly in the background, so we'll, we'll bring you in just now as well. So uh, you're a nutritionist in the livestock team. So, again, if you could give us a wee insight into what, what you do on a day-to-day basis, that would be great. Grand, yeah. Well, on a day-to-day basis, I am here to support um, our um, SEC consulting offices on ration work, but I'm also involved in some um, project work as well um, through the Farm Advisory Service and other um, uh, government projects. Um, my main interest, I would say, is in suckler cows and, uh, you know, particularly this time of year coming up to calving time, um, but all, nutri- uh, all ruminant nutrition uh, in general. Yeah, excellent. So we know there's, there's a lot happening out there, obviously, straw forage wise there's you know there's shortages in some areas and and also feed prices are changing pretty dramatically as well do you have any indication of where where feed prices are likely to go in the next few while Oh no, that's uh, I wish I had a crystal ball, but uh, the, at the moment anyway, feed prices are uh, certainly extremely high compared to where they were at the beginning of the winter. And actually, you know, speaking to uh, feed companies, um, you know, people that have been working there for a long, long time have never seen prices quite so high. Um, soya has skyrocketed, and you know, for you know perhaps a ten-ton load, you would maybe be the best part of five hundred pounds at the moment, which is is really quite high. Um, and all other proteins are. are following suit so you know at the beginning of the winter you might have paid 200 pounds if you were lucky um, or a bit more for for dark grains and now they're up over 300 pounds a ton um so the, the protein market has has gone extremely high and we hope that this you know would maybe um do a turnaround you know when the, the brazil starts her harvest in february but um we just have to, to wait and see. Um, so, in generally speaking, feed prices. Um, you know, if you're buying uh, feed from a, a merchant, they will have gone up twenty to forty-five pounds a ton, depending on the protein level of that feed, um, and also probably the level of uh, cereals as well. Um, barley is relatively cheap. Um, Compared to wheat, um, you know, maybe a fifty to sixty pound discount to wheat at the moment. So, although it is is uh, is dear compared to everything else, it is reasonably priced. Um, however, it uh, is getting increasingly harder to get hold of as well. Um, and with protein prices, I would say that um, alkali treatments of barley are probably the most attractive um, option for for feeding like finishing cattle because of the price of proteins um, you know adding a little bit of protein there to the the barley that you already have in store yep yep and on those alkaline treatments we can certainly for sheep wise you can we can do that unprocessed can't you? you can do whole barley yes yeah i mean i think there's, there's definitely been farmers successfully feeding whole barley to finishing lambs and um, you know treated barley um and mineralized as well obviously needs minerals too um for tail end lambs so that's definitely worth an option considering for for sheep as well um as long as the diet is balanced for their requirements uh, at, at the stage they're at so like for use coming up to lambing you have to be careful that the quality of the protein is, is well balanced as well and with the forage that they're being fed to and it, it's probably the thing on on sheep you know a pregnant you she's got such high demands but actually her feed intake or her feed a the amount of concentrated feed she eats is relatively low that probably getting that 
you know as as good quality protein as good quality feed into her as possible yeah yeah that's right I mean they're they're, um, as as the lambs get bigger she's not got as much room for for uh, feed so what goes into her has to be very good quality and and well balanced yep she's she's such a valuable resource really that we don't want to be scrimping on her either no no that's right. Yeah. So I would always yeah. always seek seek advice if you are going down that route for um, for pregnant ewes in particular. So we're heading into that, um, we're, or we're in, in that period where, a uh, you know we're looking towards calving, and it's actually getting pretty close. You know, uh, many people will be just a few weeks off the start of spring calving, um, and obviously management of of cows in this period is becoming, a, you know, it's it's more important as we get closer to that. Um, that calving period. So, Tim, have you any any thoughts on on how we should be managing these you know these fairly fit dry cows at the moment? How how should we be a uh, making sure they're in, in in ideal condition for calving time? Yeah. So I guess um, come in and think. Well, what's our what's our goal here for the year? What's our aim? What exactly are we trying to do with these cattle? Uh, and and I guess we can simplify most certainly commercial beef systems, suckler systems, down to probably just two targets. If 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 we start our cycle just at weaning time, um, and P, on PD day, the, the, those two things usually coincide. So so we we we've weaned last year's calves and we've done our PDs and we know we've got pregnant cattle now. Hopefully, let's take that as a minimum. We've done our PD. We've just really got two targets. We we, we need that cow to to wean a calf. And we need her to get back in calf, and and then I guess we can add on two more, <laughs> or modify them slightly and add on two more. We want her really to wean a big calf, as in a rapidly growing, good growth rate calf, and we want her to get back in calf quickly. Um, so so I think it's always helpful before we drill in. Let's just keep our eye on the wide context. That's what we need her to do. Um, and now we look forward. Okay, so we're in January and and calving ahead of us, as, as you've said now. What will threaten what will threaten those two those two targets? And I suppose from the health point, if I could start that, nutrition is going to be massive. I'm awfully glad Karen's on the call uh, and can, <laughs> can pick that up. But if I can start with the health thing, the, the big threat right now to weaning a calf is a, is abortion, as I as I talked about. Um, and as we move into calving, stillbirth and neonatal losses will become bigger. But but right now it's abortion, uh, and we know in the beef systems. The majority of the abortions that we see through the lab, they are coming from environmental um, environmental challenges. So that's bugs that live in spoiled silage or poorly preserved silage, bugs that live around dirty water troughs or in or in low quality bedding. Um, that, that's the big threat. So I think what what we could be doing now is 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 just reassessing: are are we doing everything we can to reduce the probability of, of an abortion outbreak here? You know making sure spoiled silage is not going near our, our pregnant cattle, ideally taking blocks from the middle of the pit, not from the top where there tends to be a bit more spoilage or the side where there can be more spoilage. Let's look at water troughs. How, how are the water troughs? When did we last clean them out? Do they need a bit of attention, a bit of TLC now? Um, simple things like that can can probably can probably make a big difference. Um, and then, you know, cow condition, we, we, and, and this, this is both in, in terms of... Um, Getting them calves, so we don't we don't want overconditioned cows. That can definitely increase our risk of stillbirth. Um, and equally, we don't want thin cows where we're we're really going to risk um, extended breeding periods. So so them not going back in calf 
quickly enough. And those fit cows not only an increased risk of, of stillbirth, they're, they're also at increased risk of condition loss after calving. And of, and of course, that's going to extend. So we, we're trying to deal with the two at the edges, but I think I'll, I'll leave the nutrition side uh, for, for Karen to pick up on. So, so right now, I would say it's about abortion and the, the big ones are, are um, environmental contaminants and feed quality. Yeah, I like the way you put that there. Actually, you know, the the main driver of what we're trying to do here is is make money. You know, we're trying to get calves on the ground and actually have a, a viable, profitable business. So, um, yeah, good good thoughts there. Hey, Karen, on the nutrition end of things, um, do you want to mention anything about you know minerals and rations and things at at this stage? Yes, yes, I think you know. After the, the Christmas and New Year period, it's always a good time or it's a time when farmers are sort of taking a look at cattle and thinking, right, where are they? We're not far off calving. What, what are they looking like? And Tim's quite right. Condition is a is a massive part of it. And I think sometimes we can get quite hung up on um, you know, what condition score they actually are and things. But I just would encourage you to, to look at your own herd and see if you're happy with the condition they're in for your animals that you have. Um, and also consider the ration that they're on too. Um, we obviously don't want to, you know, as Tim said, have over-conditioned cows, but we don't want to be scrimping on the ration um, either. It really depends though, on the length of your calving period, whether, um, you know, how you're maybe going to manage that feeding and manage the groups. And uh, so I would think about the base ration. So if, uh, you know, make sure that the forage that you're feeding um, is of good enough quality, but, um, if it isn't, then make sure that uh, you're supplementing accordingly um, to bring it up where it needs to be. Um, cows coming up to calving, lacking energy or protein, um, you know, r- run the risk of having um, poorer quality colostrum. Um, and therefore, that's obviously going to, to um, impact on our calf survival. Um, you're asking me to touch on minerals as well. I think... Um, Again, it does depend on the base ration you're feeding, but I would advise you to um, look for a good suckler cow mineral. I mean, it might not necessarily be branded a pre-calving mineral, but you're looking for good levels of trace elements, um, you know, a, a good level of vitamin E, probably around about 2,000 units of vitamin E. Um, there, there's some really high levels of vitamin E around, and these are kind of luxury levels, which might cost you a bit more. So. Um, not entirely certain you need these these high levels, um, but also take care to um, ensure that you've got enough magnesium as well in your pre-calving mineral. So um, at least 10% magnesium in your mineral, um, ideally probably 15%. Um, but a lot of the you know suckler cow or pre-calving minerals will have 10% in them. But it also depends on what rate you're feeding it at. So if you're feeding that mineral at 100 grams a head a day, um, the cow is getting 10 grams of magnesium. If you're feeding it at 150 grams a day, she's getting 15 grams of magnesium. And roughly speaking, on a silage uh, ration, she'll get half of her requirements from the base ration and the other half from, from minerals. So um, if we're looking for about 25 grams of magnesium a head a day um you know you're you're maybe on the borderline um if if it's at 10 percent um i think as well it depends on the base ration too because if you have straw um as your base feed it's going to be poorer for for minerals than a a silage base ration for example so um always worth uh, taking that into account yep we're also seeing a kind of probably increasing trend in people using boluses as well and, and getting mm. more minerals on board that way. Do either of you have thoughts on boluses as as part of a, a, a mineral strategy? 
you want me to go first, Tim? <laughs> like this. Um, yeah. um, well, I'll, I'll give it from a nutrition point of view and then Tim can maybe, maybe pop in as well. Um, I think there's definitely a place for boluses if there is a problem on farm. So you quite commonly hear, you know, maybe got a, a copper deficiency or an iodine problem. Um, but I would strongly encourage farmers to um, uh, investigate whether they have a known problem, first of all, before going down the bolus route. Um, I think boluses were traditionally brought out um, to feed it grass because grass was short of trace elements. And um, increasingly, we're seeing people, um, you know, bolusing before calving time. So they've maybe got a high iodine bolus, for example, um, if they've had a, an iodine issue in the past. But then if they're feeding a mineral with a really high iodine content, again, you know, it's, it's really overdoing it um, compared to the requirements. Um, so it can be quite costly to, to bolus as well. So I really would encourage people to maybe investigate um, and, and, and be factual about you know when and and um, if they need to bolus. Um, I don't know if you agree with that Tim or if there's anything you'd like to add. No no spot on I, th I think that's absolutely right. Um, th they've got a place but it but it's it's it probably a relatively small place there's 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 cheaper and easier ways um, to to mineralize rations that that, that should should be utilized. Uh, first, there's a few lessons that not in beef necessarily, although it's still an, an active research question. But certainly in sheep, we've seen issues over excess supplementation. So, yeah. as Karen hinted at there, you stick it in the mineral. You, uh, sorry, you put you put it in the ration. You put it in a bucket. You put it in a bolus. Sometimes you pour it on their back. You know, and and, and an iodine that can uh, that can lead to, to real problems with neonates, where they where if there's been excess iodine pre-lambing then the lamb really struggles to absorb colostrum um, post-lambing. So we get we get big problems. So so that you know there are there are issues with over supplementation too, which we should always be cautious of. Um, and then you know the the bolus that it, it can be we can reach for it to fix a oh my cows aren't in calf, I'll try a bolus. You know that that's a very mm. simple narrative which is probably not going to be accurate. There's there's so many things that could be leading to cows not going in calf or you know, calves not being as bright as we'd like them to be uh, when they first hit the ground, it's unlikely that adding in a bolus is going to reverse that. There'll be a small number of cases where that is definitely appropriate, but 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 we should be looking at, as Karen's hinted at already, let's look at energy, let's look at quality of feed, let's look at um, protein in the feed before we drill all the way down to the to the micronutrient, which is less likely. So it's yeah, it's, it can be expensive and and they've got a place, but um, shouldn't be overdone. And don't don't reach for that simple narrative. Oh yes, my cows are doing this because they don't have a bolus. It does happen, but it's a quite a rare it's quite a rare occurrence. Um, as I was listening to Karen, if, sorry Robert, if I could, I, I was I was just thinking back to the protein cost and oh my goodness, you know, eye watering feed costs coming mm. through. It's, it's not what we want to hear at all. Um, and we're putting our hands in our pockets here to put the right ration in front of these cattle, and I think that is an investment, as we said. This cow's job is to produce this calf and get back in calf quickly, and pre-calving nutrition is really going to drive a big part of that. But but let's look after a few a few very common disease issues, which are you know going to scunner. You could put the best ration in front of them, but if the liver is full of fluke, or if the animal is suffering from Yoni's disease, eh, etc., then then they're really going to struggle to convert that. So just make sure we're taking care of the basic health issues as well, um, and and the cow's able to to use the ration that you're paying for and putting in front of her. Yeah, I think that the thing with beef production, it's almost, I suppose it's the exciting part of it too, is that we're not dealing with 
obviously we are at the moment we're dealing with January issues or pre-calving issues, but we're actually dealing with a full annual cycle. You know, we're dealing with this a you know, your cows might not be getting calved based on lack of body condition through the winter or that type of thing. So it's all about having that full tied up connected system and getting it right or getting it as close to right as we can through the whole year. And obviously, as you see, Tim, disease control has to be at the, you know, the the, the top of the priority list to, to make sure things are right, right through the year. Absolutely. I, th- I think that's, I mean, it's funny to think of it, but that th- we are, we are definitely our, our goal in January is to get that cow back in calf. Fair enough, the bull might not go in until till June, but but the, the setting the cow up is, starts now, or you know probably started pre Christmas really. But um, that's that's where we that's what our, our thinking should be. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. Karen, buckets for pre-calving cows. There's a lot of different buckets on the go. There's a lots of barbarian claims out there as to what the best bucket is and. Have you th- what, what's your thoughts on on bucket fed minerals, as in molasses buckets? Uh, obviously, it's a bit easier on labour front, but does it do the full job? Yeah, that's a really good question. Actually, um, something we get get quite a lot. Um, buckets are great and convenient, um, but however, there are some you know pros and cons as with all things. Um, I would say with buckets, the the danger, especially when cattle are inside, is that. Um, you know, they, they're inside, they've not got an awful lot to do, so they do tend to go to a bucket. And if it's quite soft and, and molasses, then they might have higher intakes than um, is recommended. Um, but also, we don't know which cows are taking and which are cows aren't taking, so you, you get a variation in intakes. Um, so especially coming up to calving, if um, maybe not so bad if there is a, a good mixed balanced diet, but if you're in a, a more extreme diet, so if it's straw based or there's draft or something else in there, um, which is particularly lacking in minerals, then buckets can sometimes cause issues with um, cows that are not taking enough. Um, I think fr- from my point of view, I would say that the the um, best way to supplement is, is with a, an infeed powdered mineral um, it's either sprinkled on top of the silage or if a total mixed ration is being fed having it mixed in as well um, and that way you know that every cow is getting um, the required amount of mineral um, per day um, but buckets definitely do have a place for c- convenience um, I would say depending on what's in the bucket as well as um, you know you as I said earlier you've got pre-calving minerals or you've got some that are just you know good quality suckler cow minerals and Probably the biggest difference in these is that um, some of the pre-calving minerals have a, a, a really, really low calcium level. And the idea of that is that it encourages the cow to mobilise her own reserves of calcium. Um, I would say that in suckler cows, it's maybe not quite as important as in dairy cows um, to have that um, in a mineral. And um, if once cows are calved, um, you, you have a, a zero calcium mineral, it's really important to move cows um onto a mineral that has calcium in it when they start to produce milk because they will be deficient in calcium. So um, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, Tim, <laughs> being the, from the dairy background as well. Yeah, yeah definitely. I, I think um, it's, it's that transition um, to, to milk production and, and subclinical hypocalcemia is what, is what we would call it. So, so marginally low calcium just around the point of calving um, in dairy cattle, it's very, very well recognised. Obviously, in, in, in beef cattle, maybe a bit less so, but certainly we, we believe it plays a, a significant role in what we call slow calving syndrome, 
So she, she maybe looks like she's going to calve and she starts and then and then it just seems to go off her and, and the calf doesn't seem to come out. And sometimes that calf, by the time it is delivered, uh, unfortunately can be stillborn. And, and, and when we get the chance to examine them, you, you can you can see evidence in your post-mortem that the, the the calf's been wanting to come out, but but just hasn't been able. And and sometimes low levels of calcium in the blood, slightly low levels of calcium in the blood, can uh, can uh, can contribute to that. So certainly getting the ma the macro mineral right. You, you mentioned earlier magnesium supplementation, um, yep. and, and and as soon as there's milk production, we, we really do need calcium supplementation there, um, yep. uh, there as well. So magnesium, uh, just to, um, for the listeners, that it, it it's got a role, a hormonal role in. Um, in contractions and, and uh, the calving process um, and the release of calcium. Um, so it's, it's really important to have a good level of magnesium. And you sometimes see issues, as you said, with slow calving, if you have high potassium silages where the magnesium is locked up um, and not as available. So higher levels of magnesium are required to be fed if you've got high potassium silages. So silages that are perhaps over two and a half to three percent potassium um, would need higher levels of supplementation. I think when you see all these interactions and, and what all these different minerals are doing, it, it just highlights the fact that this is, you know, it's really important to get this right for the cow's sake and for your, you know, for your business's sake, but it's complicated stuff and it's well worth at this stage having a, a proper discussion with somebody else, you know, with your vet or a nutritionist, just to talk through what your options are and, and what would probably be best for your your unique scenario the one question i suppose tim is we spoke about um trends and and fashions and one thing that's becoming a bit more common is metabolic profiling is the do you think there's a, a role for you know at this stage january february time is doing a few metabolic profiles of of suckler cows is that a useful is that a worthwhile um tool in the in the armory yeah, I, th I think we should keep it on the we should keep it on the page as a, as an option. It, it'll obviously depend when you're calving. You you might be a wee bit early for them just yet. If 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 you're a if you're a sort of a mid March mid March calving, um, we're we're a, you know we we want to try and test the cow when when the when when she's maybe slightly closer to calving than that, um, and I think again they they definitely have a place to sort of fine tune a system. But there's an awful lot we can do by eye, and there's an awful lot we can do before we go to metabolic profiling and condition scoring. You know, being one of them, getting hands-on condition scores. We maybe don't need to write down and record an individual score for every cow, but getting a, a general idea of where they're at and how many are below target and how many are above tells you a huge amount. Um, having your silage analysed, there's, you know, can making a, re a really good point about high potassium silage there, and um, how many of us know what what the silage is contributing, you know, in, in terms of both energy, protein, and and uh, and, and and micronutrients. Um, so, so there's a lot you can do before you have to to go to the metabolic profiling. But yeah, if if, if we're looking to fine tune a system, or if we've had issues in previous years, then then it can be a, it can be an add on, uh, which, which can be helpful. I would like to think in a, in a lot of beef systems, it's not it's not absolutely necessary, um, but but and at some times it would be it can be helpful. Yep, excellent. Yeah. Karen, do you want to add to that at all? 
Yeah, I was just going to say we um, recently um, have done a um, knowledge transfer innovation fund project um, looking at 12 suckler herds, looking at the metabolic profiles, blood profiles pre-calving, a month pre-calving and a month post-calving. Um, and we're just generally looking for um, trends and, um, you know, to give these 12 farmers feedback on, on management of uh, nutrition and to see if there was any areas that we could improve, you know, for herd fertility, as Tim was saying, obviously that's the most important thing to get the cow back in calf and rear our own calf. Um, and we found in the pre-calving nutrition a month before, over a third of the cows were short of magnesium, um, which we re rectified in the farms that we were um, studying. Um, and there was also a, a large number of cows that were maybe short in protein um, and in energy at that point. So we were able to point out to the farmers that, um, you know, there's things that they could do to improve the ration that the cows were on. Um, we also noticed in two of the herds, they had uh, low blood albumin levels, which indicated um, disease in the herd. And all of the cows that were tested had these low albumin levels. And it turned out that two of these um, herds had um, a fluke problem and both herds had actually already been treated for fluke. And it was something that maybe wouldn't have been picked up um, if it hadn't been for the blood. So from, from that point of view, that was uh, quite useful. But I agree with Tim, there's, there's a lot of other things that can be done uh, prior to blood testing. But I think if there is a problem on the farm or there's recurrent problems every year, then it's a, it's a, a useful tool to see where they're sitting at and energy protein status and also for some um, key minerals and trace elements. We saw it used pretty widely in, in Ayrshire in, a, I think it was the winter of 2012 into 13, which many yeah. will remember was a real, a real tough one. And there was a lot of really, you know, horror stories out there with bad calvings and unfit cows and fluke and all kinds of things and you know that metabolic profile really was was a fairly useful tool to to kind of guide people uh, that they needed to often it was a case to include more energy and more protein into their diet the one from that the spin-off from that really has been that from then a lot of people have been feeding quite a lot of soya into their into the suckler diets um obviously the, with prices changing and and you know that the, the the market, the whole situation's changed a lot, and there's a lot of good silages out there. I just wonder if it's is it you know is it worth highlighting the soya, the role of soya in a suckler diet, Karen? Yes, yeah, it's a it's a tricky one. There's a lot of chat about soya and suckler uh, cow rations, um, and you know there perhaps, as you said, might have been a place if there'd been you know or there maybe is a place where there's poor forage being fed, um, and it definitely increases the metabolizable protein of the ration. That's the protein that's useful to the cow. Um, what I would say, though, is that I have heard some farmers saying, you know, oh, I've got some soya, I'm going to feed it before calving and 100 grams a head, you know, maybe piggybacking on the back of maybe some earlier work that was done in for sheep. But really, 100 grams of soya or 200 grams of soya is not really enough to um, make a significant difference to the overall metabolizable protein that that cow um, is receiving and it can quite easily if those were the levels of soy being fed you can quite easily make up the metabolizable protein with a few more kilos of forage um, what i would say is on good quality um reasonable protein forage um you should be able to absolutely have no problems uh, calving cows down and having good quality colostrum um, and I, I think there is perhaps a place if you're 
feeding, poorer quality forage, um, but it can also be, there's other feeds available that can be used to, um, to supplement protein um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be soya. Um, I think soya as well at the moment, as I said earlier, best part of £500 a tonne, if you're buying just one tonne bag, um, even dearer and um, I think when you've maybe got a say a 12 week calving period you also have the dilemma of when do I start feeding this soya and when do I stop and the idea is is to improve colostrum quality um it would really need to be fed a fortnight before that cow calves but obviously if you've got a 12 week calving period you'll be you know you'll have some cows that are are 12 weeks off calving and some that are are imminent so it's a very costly thing to do and to add in um and if the base ration is um correct and adequate and balanced um, there shouldn't really be a need to do that um, there might be an argument for adding soya or an, another high protein um, supplement into heifer rations because heifers are always going to have lower quality and lower quantity of colostrum so if you know if we can really improve that quality of the colostrum that their heifer calves get into them um, there might be an argument for that but um, I think with the price of soy at the moment and you know sustainability issues and, and these sort of things and we are dealing with a, a suckler cow she should manage on um, you know reasonable quality forage to to produce a calf and to have good quality colostrum um, on its own but I'm not uh, saying it's a bad thing but I'm not promoting it either <laughs> I think it would really depend on the individual situation but if, you, if, if the, make sure you get your base forage analysed and know what you're feeding from the base. Um, you know, a sprinkle of soya is not likely to solve um, bigger issues. Um, I don't know if that's a, a good answer or not. It's uh, very um, on the fence. <laughs> you know, I think it's a, a full answer. I think it's good. The, I think what's becoming quite clear, or what I'm beginning to or get my head around, is with sustainability issues with massive price variations you know soya is a global commodity with no control over it at all self-sufficiency has to be coming up our you know on-farm self-sufficiency producing that really high quality silage for next year Mm -hmm. or or this summer has to be the most important thing we can do and and make use of you know make use of the, the the farm asset that we've got and produce as much quality protein as we can at home we can't grow soya but we can grow really good quality grass yeah and the thing is i think um you know blood um, results in other trials that have, have been done at edinburgh university have shown that you know that the the blood results are are very you can get good blood results on 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 ad lib good quality silage or even silage and a little bit of straw rations if the silage quality is there um coming up to calving so um i think the economics of it have have to be looked at but i I know some people do swear by it and um i think it's um it's just the the right amount in in the diet um taking into account the base ration um not to just be used as a a wee sprinkle to to try and help (laughs) yeah um tim i'm seeing quite a lot of cattle around the country at the moment that are I'm not seeing enough cattle around the country at the moment to be fair because of lockdown but those few cattle that we are seeing there seems to be a lot of itchy cattle on the go a lot of kind of lice issues and things how concerned should we be about lice at this stage yeah I think I think we should be keeping tabs on it it's definitely the peak season um for the problem so we're, we're, we're you know we would, we would expect to see it um and I guess in, in terms of what when while the cow is itching, 
she's not eating <laughs> and 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 so so it does have an impact on production um in 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 terms of both growth rates if it's if it's young stock or o- older cattle um not taking in that high quality ration that that, that Karen has <laughs> has delivered to us tonight um so yes it's a problem and and we should be we should be really treating when 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 we when when we see those signs um, and, and monitoring response to that treatment. If we're not getting an early response, then diagnostics are really quite important. Uh, and sp- speaking to your vet to come out and take some samples and, and follow that up. While often we would expect a good response to treatment, as, as soon as we don't get that, it should be investigated uh, in, investigated carefully. Yeah, and I think it's one of those ones that you can... I know some people would wait for warmer weather and, and a lice problem will go away with you know, longer days and higher temperatures, but you've kind of got to put yourself in the animal's foot there, and put yourself in the animal's shoes, and you know it can't be that comfy standing for months on end, itching with no fingers and no, you know, rubbing off whatever you can, um, whatever you can get at to deal with a constant itch. So no, that's um, right, and and um, there's grades of severity, isn't there? And 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 it's just a, a you know making a sensible call as to when we need to go in, but but, but yes, we we should be. Uh, we should be considering that and, and going in with treatments uh, and, and testing um, as appropriate. Absolutely. So I'm conscious of everyone's time, including our listeners' time. Thank you both very much. We've covered a huge amount of stuff today, from liver fluke to the price of soya and lots of other things in between. So a big thanks to Tim and Karen for their specialist input today. I've thoroughly enjoyed our discussions and I hope that our listeners enjoy it and find it useful. We're going to be producing this podcast monthly, so if you did enjoy it, be sure to tune in to next month's edition.